Welcome to Bread and Poppies, a show about why drugs are good, capitalism is bad, and what to do about it. What does it feel like to know you're going to federal prison? That your life as you know it is over, not because you harmed anyone, but because you sold a plant to people who wanted it? What does it feel like to be on the receiving end of state violence, an injustice so staggering it defies words? The person I'm speaking with on the show today, Daniel Musig, knows the answer. We're going to explore his story today. It's heavy, but it needs to be heard. Stick with the whole thing and be prepared for an extra shock near the end. If you've suffered the trauma of arrest or imprisonment, be aware that this might be a difficult listen. First though, hello friends, I'm back. If you're new to Bread and Poppies, I'm Hilary Agro. I'm an anthropologist who studies drugs and our relationship to them as individuals, as a society, and as a species. I also study activism and organizing by drug users against prohibition and capitalism. And I do that stuff myself. It's been two years almost to the day since the last episode of Bread and Poppies. Uh, I feel like I probably don't have to even explain the unexpected hiatus, given, you know, everything that's going on. But in a nutshell, I went into survival mode with the pandemic, and the more time went by, the harder it became to envision how I was going to start this up again. But here I am. Hi. I missed you. I missed doing this. Bread and Poppies is back. I have a producer now, and I have some fancy new logos. I have several interviews already recorded, and I have, uh, due to a random hyperfocus episode that landed me on TikTok, uh, about 80,000 more followers on social media than I did when this podcast started. So maybe we can get more people on board with the work that needs to be done to dismantle capitalism and end the war on drugs. I recorded the following interview on December 3rd, 2021. In order to not impact his sentencing, I wasn't able to release it until Dan was actually sentenced. That happened yesterday, March 8, 2022. In the next episode, which will feature part two of this two-part interview, I'll talk about what happened at his sentencing. This is uh, Bread and Poppies, and we're here with Daniel Musig, who is a former criminal defense attorney in Pennsylvania, friend of a friend of mine, and he has been fucked by the exact system that we talk about uh, here on the podcast and that I talk about in my work. So yeah, this is heavy stuff, but thank you so much for joining me here, Daniel. Thank you. I appreciate you giving me the chance to try and tell people what happened to me before they take me away. You know, yeah. And- a lot of people, uh, a lot of people turn a blind eye, deaf ear, shut the door, close the window because it interferes with their own comfort and ease to hear the agony of another person. So uh, your your empathy and that of our mutual friend Maria is not underestimated. I would just like to say that. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks. It's. Uh, I mean, it's all we can do. You know, there's. I feel like the the. <laughs> Most of, um, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what most, but a, a large chunk of the general public are on our side with these kind of things, and we all just feel like we're screaming into the void. But the more that we can make these connections and and get more people on board with learning about how horrifyingly devastating our drug policies are, um, you know, the more that we can save people from the kind of fate that you're dealing with right now. 
So, um, yeah. So what happened? <laughs> um, so in the immediate, what happened was on May 24th, 2019, a amalgamated task force of local and federal law enforcement agents in what the United States terms the Western District of Pennsylvania for federal purposes, which would be Western PA. And that was in the city of Pittsburgh, and it was in the traditionally Jewish enclave of Squirrel Hill, which is where I grew up and where I applied my trade as a large-scale, nonviolent, but highly organized marijuana trafficker, much like lots of people do in their various ethnic enclaves in other cities. That's where I did mine with my peeps. So they, uh, they staked out our stash house for a drop and... I walked right into it. I had to be up there that day for some reason. Um, I think there was a discrepancy in the count or something like that. So I had to be up there that day. Normally, I wouldn't have gone up there at all, honestly. And I arrived there at about 9.30 in the morning. It's a small apartment house, red brick, about two, three units with a garage around the back underneath it, right by the yeshiva where the Orthodox uh, go to school and study Torah. Um, I did not realize when I walked in that we were on FBI surveillance. I had absolutely no idea. And I would say that as a warning to anyone who's in the streets doing their thing, you know, you think you have optimal trade craft and you have all these apps and technologies and stuff like that. But I would say two things. One, they have a lot more experience than you do in catching people than you do in getting away with things, because I consider myself to be a pretty savvy veteran at that mm-hmm. time. Two, there is absolutely no technology or application that safeguards against human betrayal. And we can get into that later. Mm. So the you know the drop was made uh you know i i remember i went in there i went into the the house and it was uh two guys i was really close with one of them it was the last time i ever saw him alive he subsequently hung himself after he got indicted he was a father Jesus. of three and a grandfather of eight and i believe he was about to be a great grandfather he's a really really good man oh god yeah, we were just bantering. He's like my, my dad's age. Yeah, he's really mm-hmm. good guy. We were just bantering. Everyone was just, you know, hanging out. Typical, you know, typical day at work. And uh, everything everything got dropped. Uh, I remember I was complaining. I was like, man, I can't, I, I, I haven't paid myself or whatever. I haven't gotten paid this week or whatever. And he was like, oh, you'll get it all back when you retire. He said something like flippant like that. And I was like, all right, pops. Sure thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, you know, like I said, we, we all, that's the thing I really want to convey is that a lot of times people look into these conspiracies and they think that it's a bunch of nefarious, self interested people. And that is sometimes the case. And it often becomes the case once it gets real and the consequences start being levied. But at the time, it was, uh, it was, um, it, it was a bunch of people who, who loved each other, mm. you know and had some sort of bond, at least at the time or so I thought 
I mean, it's certainly how I felt about everybody. Yeah. I mean, it's this, this stuff is very complex and it's really hard to, to generalize with sales. But, um, I think that, yeah, there's a significant sort of public perception of drug sellers that does not actually line up with reality at all. Um, yeah. Yeah. That I talk about a lot in terms of people just wanting to blame fentanyl dealers for overdoses and things. And it's like, most dealers don't want their friends to overdose. Like, they're not trying to do that. Like that's like people are friends with their dealers. Like that's not, it's not an antagonistic relationship in most cases. No. And in this, in this case, our modality was strictly cannabis and cannabis derivatives, you know, Mm -hmm. cartridges, tax edibles, whatever. So they dropped about 240 pounds on us or something like that and then they i think we had like another 150 in the tuck so that brought it up to 404 pounds driver left and uh i went back outside because i was getting ready to leave basically my work there for the day being done and i remember i had a and you can ask maria about this because she knows me Uh, i had this like kind of cocky smirk on my face which is kind of like my default i don't know kind of half smile that i have and i I don't know it it was a nice day out it was memorial day weekend i I felt good you know and Mm -hmm. i um i looked at my one phone and an encrypted message came up on the phone and i remember my smile just died like i could feel the muscles relax and i really haven't ever smiled since so i looked at the phone and it said driver got pulled on the way to the parkway. So I hopped on the phone and I called back whoever told me this and they were like, yeah, driver got pulled, bro. Like just saw it happen. And I, I remember screaming incredulous into the phone. Uh, there's a speed trap for Memorial day there. You know, your brain denial, anger, acceptance, responsibility, yeah. the, 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 you know, the, the, um, yeah, so so I said, there's a speed trap there. Why did he go that way? I can't believe he went that way. That's insane. Da, 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 da. And he goes, man, this was not a traffic pullover. He was like, his, his car, actually, they got him right by the entrance of a legal dispensary. I think the cars came out of the dispensary parking lot. Oh. And they, they, you know, but they, they all got surrounded or whatever by, you know, like guys with like machine guns and like flak vests and stuff like that. It was not a random pullover. So I come running back into the apartment and I tell whomever is there, I was like, we have an extremely serious situation. And given I was not in any way an active defense attorney, but given my previous training and tradecraft, I immediately understood what it was. I didn't know to the extent that my life would be plunged into this hell even years later with years and years more of this left to endure. But I knew right then that it was all bad. The gig was up. Right. That something, something really, this wasn't a random pullover. This was targeted. And then ergo, that means that if they hit the driver, that means that they're, they're either going to get here very soon or they're already here. Like the hammer's coming. So we have, it's kind of like, kind of like the feeling you feel like in war, maybe where they're like, you know, the, like we just spotted missiles on the way, you know, you're like minus 10 minutes, five minutes, whatever till impact. So running in, and, uh, you know, I remember I, I, I see the inside of that apartment almost every night when I go to sleep. Yeah. And I, I told them what it was. And you could feel the blood like draining out of your limbs and your stomach, like your extremities, whatever. 
And I'm like, we got to get the fuck out of here. I was like, we have to leave right now. I was like, we need to get as much as we can carry on our backs and we need to hump it and we need to go. Mm -hmm. And they did not want to do that. They thought that was, they were like, no, well, the one guy, he was like, well, the apartment's in my name or whatever. So he was like, I don't, you know, like, why would I? And I was like, man, I was like, I don't think you understand. Like, whatever's about to happen, this is going to be really, really bad. This is not, this is not a drill. And he was like, no, you go. I'm going to just, you know, shut the lights off, close the curtains, hunker down, and we'll clear out later tonight if it comes down to it, you know, if, you know, if we get there. And I, I kind of argue with him for a little bit. And then he's like, no, just go, just go, 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 go. So mm-hmm. I leave. It's my own neighborhood. So I know it like the back of my hand. And I actually get through the FBI cordon on foot. And I start running to a city There's an park. FBI cordon. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know it at that time. Okay. But they were, they, were, they were in blacked out uh, surveillance cars up and down the block. I only realized that after I got indicted and I got a hand, my hands on the footage. Right. My discovery. It showed me you know, on the thing. Yeah. And Austin, they had us. The camera was like a machine gun. Anyone it hit, that's it. Fuck. Yeah. So I made it to the local park. And at this point, I'm assessing the damage because the car had half a million U.S. in it. So I'm like, okay, well, that's a... Like bad. in cash or in... Yeah, half a million in cash. And there's 404 pounds at the uh, at the apartment. So we're talking about a, a pretty substantial yeah, loss, this was... regardless of anything else happening. Yeah. A pretty catastrophic day, plus people who are my friends are, are getting arrested. At least one has so far. And then we're hoping that it's confined to that and we can get them out and just start figuring this out or whatever. I start kind of working my way down the park to try and get to where the parkway is under the park. Cause I want to see where the driver's being pulled over just cause I'm trying to get any piece of information I can. One thing that you got to understand when these things occur is that you are in an informational black hole. Like you don't, you only see what's happening to you. You're not in contact with people anymore. People aren't picking up their phones. You're off premises running for your life. So all of a sudden you go from a place where you have like maximal access to information to absolutely none. And it's kind of like a precursor because your, your tunnel just narrows and narrows and narrows and narrows and then it ends in prison where you can't see or talk to anybody. It's kind of ironic. Yeah. So I, I, while I'm doing that, I get a call on my phone. I pick up my phone and it's one of the guys on the phone. Um, one of them had left. One of them stayed. The guy on the phone. And he literally just goes to me, they're here. Oh, God. That's all he says. Like out of an actual horror film. Yeah, he goes, they're here. Yeah. And in the distance, I can hear like the... FBI search warrant, get on the... Yeah, I mean, I can hear. Oh, my God. So, yeah. And I'm like, all right, I'll get you out. And he's like, see ya. And then cuts the phone. So oh, now. Fuck. Sorry, yeah, was this so, your friend that was that refused to leave the apartment? It was one of them, yeah. Right, one, yeah. One refused to leave. Yeah. So I I then go to the, uh, I, I then, um, I'm almost in a complete daze at this point, but I'm still trying to function effectively. Mm-hmm. I, I'm like, well, I have to get home. I have to get to my wife. I mean, that's the other thing too, is my overriding. I have a lot of competing imperatives. At one point, I'm still trying to hold on 
to this transaction and somehow get the stuff out of it or whatever. That's not going to happen. So that's over with. That's a that's a straight loss right there. But then imagine you know I'm picturing like somebody trying to leave a burning building, but you're in such panic and and disbelief that you're like, wait, I got to grab my phone or whatever. Like Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So one of the guys. One of the guys, um, he actually, uh, he actually left one of his phones there. And I think that was one of the reasons he got jammed was because they got his phone. Oh yeah. So because is if you're using, you know, an encrypted, um, an encrypted communication uh, app, does that usually work? Well, I'll Um, say this, I'll I'll say this for the actual phone. Well, I'll say this for that. I was never caught on any wiretaps or any type of incriminating text messages. Right. The extent of the evidence that they had on me was the surveillance video from that one day. And then you don't get access to what people said about you. Right. Um, on uh, In America, unless you take it to trial, it's called Jenks material. It only becomes available to you about two weeks before trial, they give you a list of the witnesses and they give you the statements that were made against you. So I never had access to any of that. I do know when I pled guilty, they said he, we also have, had we proceeded to trial, we would have had numerous eyewitness statements. So, but you don't know that until you plead. You you wouldn't understand what they have against you until you've crossed all bridges and burnt them and you're just geared up for war and there's no going back. Oh my God. So, so any chance at a deal then evaporates and then you're, you know, not that I have a deal. I mean, I just, I just pled guilty, mm-hmm. but so anyways, you know, so, yeah, so, back, so back to it. Yeah. They didn't find any text messages. They didn't find anything like that. So I would say that to some extent encryption works. Um, yeah. But the problem is that a lot of guys who have burner phones, they don't use encryption. They just have burner phones and then they get lazy and they don't throw their phones away. Right. After if, if you have just another little tradecraft nugget for anyone listening here who's still active in the game, if you have a burner phone and you don't chuck it regularly and you just use the open line, because that's what we would call it. An open line on a burner phone was as bad as calling on your regular phone. We'd be like, whoa, whoa, open line, bro. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, if you don't do that, that just becomes your phone. Because I saw people in this investigation who got jammed who literally said, who literally, they had a burner phone, but all they do is they just target your phone, like using like, you know, computer, satellite, IMEI, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it gets to the point where they can narrow down where you are to your house and then they know it's your phone, even though it's a burner. Mm-hmm. So um, unless you're using app, unless you're using encrypted apps, it's useless. Yeah. Well, this little, is, little. This is uh, I won't editorialize too much, but uh, I do, I have talked about in my public uh, publicly funded academic research. I will, I will uh, say it this this way, um, that uh, studies have shown studies like the study that I did that uh, this kind of information is harm reduction because most of the harms that come from drug use and sales are come from criminalization. So when people have access to this kind of information, like you just shared, it is helping to reduce the harm that is coming from prohibition. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anything that would keep people out of the United States prison system and particularly the federal prison system would certainly be constituted as harm reduction by any rational person. Exactly. 
No question. No question there. So yeah, I, I, at that point I, I, you know, but then my emotional imperative was, I was just like, I just have to get home to my wife. I have to get, I mm-hmm. got to see my wife again, you know, cause I'm running for my life at this point. I'm literally running. I'm running, running. And I'm, I'm running. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, I'm just repeating a mantra. I'm like, I'm going to get home. I'm going to get home. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to get home. I'm going to get home. So mm-hmm. I make it to our house and I catch her at the back door and she comes to the back door and she has like a smile on her face or whatever. I don't text her on the phone. I don't tell her anything that's happening. I'm just like, I'm on my way back. I knock on the back door. She opens it and I can like, and she's like, she's like, how's it going or whatever. And I immediately, you know, like as a partner and I guess I'm particularly like a man, like to give the woman you love that kind of news, you know, when like you're supposed to be her protector and like our entire world is on fire right now and Mm -hmm. you know just to see like because she's just like like all the what that means all the ramifications of it and i'm like i have to get the fuck out of here right now (laughs) we have to leave because you know leapfrog they're gonna go from here next they're gonna you know how many minutes do we have before they converge on my house right you know, so <laughs> I was like, we got to get out of here. I was like, we have to get mobile. I, at that point, and I was correct. I assumed that my life and freedom were forfeit, but I had a responsibility to my guys that I had to kind of get them out. Right. You know, I at least bail everybody out that was going to get arrested, wait to see what was going to happen. And then, um, you know, try to understand the ramifications of the damage and come up with some sort of strategy to mitigate and for that to happen, I couldn't be in jail. I was like, well, I'm going to get arrested soon. They'll just come for me. They'll just be like, well, you have to come in too. But until then, um, we have to go to somewhere else that's not our house. And we have to wait and see what's happening so we can understand what's happening. and We can get as many people out as possible. So that's what we did. At a certain point when we bailed somebody out, I got a hold of the, uh, the federal, the search warrant. Cause at this point we didn't know who it was. We didn't, you know, again, you don't know, like you, you're, you just, you know, there's cops, but they're not in uniform. They're plain clothes, you know? Oh, okay. So you, you have no idea who they are. You have no idea what the hell is going on. The only people who know are the people who get captured. And then immediately, obviously some of what they say can be construed as suspect depending on who they are. You know, it's right. a very like been the, compromised, level, the level of, yeah, potentially the level of paranoia. I mean, it's out of like a, a spy novel or some sort yeah. of like war Russian versus American thing in German, you know, like, I mean, like the paranoia just ratchets up the terror to a level that is indescribable. So we get a hold of the search warrant and the, I, as soon as I open it up, the search warrant, or at least the top of the search warrant, it has the Eagle stamped on the top, the double Eagle. And I'm like, all right, we're fucked. It's federal. Right. Because at that point I was like, ah, state case. Uh, okay. I mean, whatever, you know, state case that sucks, but I mean, what am I going to do? Eight months, 12 months, whatever. Federal, you already know what it is. The federal charges have mandatories. Like they're, these are right. indictments. And that's, are- that's, why, that's why it's so much scarier because of the mandatory sentencing. Mandatory sentencing, no parole. Um, probably a more, depending on your security level, a much more draconian prison regime than certain state places. Just, just everything. There's no flexibility with the feds. With the feds, mm-hmm. you either tell in some form, you either safety valve 
or you 5K one straight up cooperate, take the stand, go to the grand jury, point people out, set people up, whatever. Right. Or you stand completely stolid and tall and you get smashed because your floor is your 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 floor, your ceiling is their floor. That's what I meant to say. Your ceiling is their floor because mm. that mandatory minimum is sky fucking high and you're not getting any lower than that. If you're if you're really going to thug it out and just not yeah. say anything to them, which, you know, jumping forward in the story, I refuse to say anything to them. So now my best case is five years in a United States federal prison. Yeah, that's 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 where that's where I go. So yeah. we bail people out at this point. It's not an indictment, though. That's the other thing that I think, you know, I, for people listening in Canada, I understand a separate justice system. God, I wish I was under a Canadian justice system. Right well, now. this is what I'm always telling people because as a Canadian leftist, obviously we live in a horrible, genocidal, like colonial settler state that, you know, it's racist and it's it's awful. But I don't think it does anybody any favors to say that it's exactly the same as the US because it's not. No, it's not. And it's just, it's just, it's not fair to my American colleagues and comrades to when, when Canadians say, oh no, Canada is exactly the same because I've heard exactly those words before. Like, I wish I was in Canada, even if I'm going to prison, I wish it was anywhere but the U.S. Absolutely. Canada solo sells much easier <laughs> to get a hold of a cell phone and the internet day parole. I mean, that would be like, I wouldn't even be sweating this right now. If that were the case. I'm not, I mean, with COVID restrictions, I'm not even going to be able to get to touch my wife or my mom till I'm free. No contact. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. So, and I was going to ask too, um, I don't know how much you know about this, but I've, I've been hearing about, um, you know, <laughs> if we, if we're just going to get political with it already, um, that uh, there's a lot of like uh, video call companies that are really pressuring uh, to change laws to require that prisons and jails only allow video calls instead of in-person calls because obviously it makes them money. Is that is that a factor that you know of? I don't know. So in the in the federal system, it's incredibly restrictive. Like in the state system, some the state systems are actually more progressive. Even county jails here, which are the conditions are even are way worse. They're more violent, but the inmates get iPads, so you can make like picture you can make video calls to people off iPads from your cell. Mm -hmm. Not all day, but for a substantial portion of the day. Okay. Or you get like, you know, 30 minutes a day, an hour a day on the phone. I mean, it's something pretty decent or whatever. In the mm -hmm. feds, you get 17 minutes a day on the phone. That's it. Mm -hmm. 17 minutes a day on a payphone. I mean, to be honest, I wish that an evil conglomerate would supply <laughs> all of us in the feds with iPads that we can make video calls off of at confiscatory rates. I mean, yeah. that would be a lot better for me than yeah. the isolation because I'm about to go down the oogliette. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, yeah, you know, no one's see or good hear reference. It is. It's Google, yeah, it really is. Like, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I guess, I guess, yeah, I mean, and that's this is why, you know, we talk about harm reduction as not just like a, a series of practices, but it's kind of an ethos. Like, yeah, giving people iPads isn't going to get them out of prison, but it might keep them a little bit more sane. So, you know, no, it's, for sure. I mean, that's why, that's yeah. why. Yeah, no, no, I agree. In the federal system, the uh, the proliferation of black market cell phones is insane. Like if you Google it in America, it's like a huge issue for them, far more so than state prisons, just because of how restrictive the feds are in terms of the fact there is no parole there. And, and you know, visiting is so restricted and phone calls are so restricted that, um, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And also the feds are known for kind of more big money guys. I mean, that's like, 
states are more kind of poor inmates and vi- and again this is not right. rule that holds because there are plenty of addicts and small level people that due to the war on drugs have been scooped up into the feds but generally while you might find some small time guys in the feds you will find almost no big time guys in the states if that mm-hmm. makes any sense yeah like in america it's known in the underworld if you get money you're going to go to the feds so, like, of course, I was successful at what I did. So I popped my cherry on a fucking giant Fed case. Looking yeah. So, so point being, though, is that, like, you know, cell phones are huge there because guys there, there are guys in the Feds that can shell out $2,000 for a crappy Samsung burner phone. Right. Because yeah. they, they have the ability, they have the ability to do so. Mm-hmm. And, the, but the reason is because of how restrictive it is. If they have more visits and stuff like that, then probably people wouldn't be. Not as well, much demand. Again, well, yeah, people wouldn't be paying the guards all this money for the cell phones. Because, yeah. <laughs> again, who's, where, how do these cell phones come into the compound? I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, yeah, drones, well, maybe. Guards, guards. I mean, that that alone is, is an example I often give to people who are reluctant to talk about, you know, decriminalization and legalization is, you know, I always start with like, well, do you think the prohibition is working for what you think it's working for? Like, are, is it stopping people from using drugs? Because if we can't keep drugs and phones and things out of prisons, which are the most heavily guarded environments on earth, how the fuck do we think that we're going to keep drugs out of regular society? Like, right. it's just, it's fallacious. But that's also working under the assumption that that's what the war on drugs is for. And it's not. No, so. <laughs> the, war on drugs is just, the war on drugs is just genocide. It's just, it's just meant to eliminate a segment of the population. Yes. And, you know, and, and, and I even recognize my privilege in that because, you know, I'm a highly educated white man from, an from a 1% American family that mm-hmm. uh, is going to federal prison for large scale marijuana trafficking. So I'm basically like the dolphin that got scooped up in the tuna net, but I'm the exception that proves the rule. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're at this point, they've become so rapacious at this point that they're, they're even getting, they're even getting guys who look like your neighbor or your kid. It's crazy. You know, yeah. <laughs> like nobody paid any attention when they were scooping up people of color wholesale. I mean, I did, I understood what it was, but, and it's other, other people here in America that are ideologically aligned with myself, but like, yeah, now, I mean, it's gotten to the point where, I mean, they just, you know, like they're, they're literally taking everybody. You know? Yeah, okay. it's, it's collateral damage uh, in, in a, a system that's meant to reinforce white supremacy and capitalism. It's, yeah, and it's funny, it's funny how, I don't know, like, you know, look, I'm, I'm going to jail because I sold 100 kilograms of marijuana or more in violation of federal law. But then like I look at my life where I was like an underground touring rapper and I was this like left wing activist type person. And then I was this like really outspoken, brash, like left wing criminal defense attorney. And, 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 you know, like all the backing I did for like really progressive candidates here. And mm-hmm. it's not that they like saw any of that and singled me out. But then like, I do wonder, I'm like, why did you guys come get me 28 months after I sold weed? Like that, I mean, that, that's crazy, right? Like I got, yeah. I got, I got indicted and I'll get back into the story in a second, but like I got indicted in August of this year for selling weed in May of 2019. So it's like, you know, they, investigated, they investigated me like I committed a cold case murder. You know, yeah. like they're like, who sold weed in 2019? Well, know? this and this is why it's important to have this kind of, um, you know, uh, if I may, intersectional analysis because, you know, the 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 primary function of the the war on drugs is um, 
you know, like, like racial hierarchy and segregation, but it's not just that. It's also a tool that is used um, to uphold capitalism, which means that class comes into play and not just class in terms of like, oh, you're a rich person, so you're, um, you know, you're safe because that's clearly not the case. It's just that it gives them an excuse to come after, after people who are questioning the system, which, yeah, you know. I was, I was, I was nonviolent, but I was definitely a bohemian rebel that was making money on my own terms and did my own thing. And I had my own crew working out of my neighborhood that I grew up in. And I was a, uh, I was a law unto myself outside the system and that, they did not intentionally target me that way, perhaps. I mean, although sometimes I do think so, but the inevitable result of being an individual like that in American society is square peg, round hole, whack-a-mole, whatever metaphor you want to use, I'm going to get smashed down. Yeah. You know, they, yeah, they, have the hammer. they have the hammer. I'm the highest, I'm the highest up nail. You know, they're, they're, they're going to apply that force. So I, I, we bail everyone out. It's a state case for about two, three weeks. And, you know, the terror, the paranoia and the terror is just mounting. And it's funny because it's like all I feel now. So it's almost like I'm used to it. Like my body doesn't even have any more cortisol to shoot into itself. Oh, God. It's, like, it's like, you know, you don't sleep, you don't eat, you, 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 you can't think because, and you're talking to your lawyer friends and they're like, yeah, I don't know, man, it looks federal. It looks federal. It looks federal. It looks federal. And then one morning I woke up to my phone going off and it was someone who called me and they gave me the tip off. They were like, the feds just rearrested all those people who got arrested that day. Um, you, you know, the, he, they were like, you're not arrested. I was like, no, I'm not I, like, look out my window and stuff like that. At that point I'd taken to sleeping fully clothed or whatever with my shoes next to my bed and all my stuff ready just to dash at any point in time or just answer the door so I could prevent them from kicking the door down and assaulting my wife with, right. you know, her face. So I, he was like, get moving now. He was like, get, get on the road. He was like, again, just get out of your house, run for it. So again, like imagine this, like for the second time in like two weeks, he's like, run for your fucking life. Get out of your house. Oh, right. like, so, you know, he's like, he's like, check your people, you know, like make sure all the other guys that you know across the city and the county or whatever are safe. So I do that. I get mobile again. And then I realize I have to come clean to my parents because at this point I assume that I'm going to be in cuffs by the end of the day. You know, I just figured I, you know, I was like, there must be some clerical error or something. So again, I have to now get new lawyers because now this is federal. So this is a whole different situation. So I have to rearrange for legal stuff. I'm trying to figure out what's going on and coordinate everything with everybody, trying to make sure that they're cool and their families are cool. And then I also have a duty to perform myself, which is I have to come clean to my parents and let them know that. Their pretty much their entire financial and emotional investiture in my life was predicated under false pretenses, and their son that they had devoted so much energy and attention and given so much understanding to was actually something not than what he seemed. Mm. You know, yeah. and um, you know, look, like that's, I don't. That's pretty heavy. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any moral qualms about what I did well that's so. the thing i was i was thinking as you were saying that was that it's it's really it's horrible um the the extent to which stigma ruins families for stuff for doing things that are not actually morally wrong like it's right. not wrong and to sell a plant to people who want a plant i know i know i know it's, it's not and and the thing is like too is like my parents are pretty liberal like they're not you know they're not stick in the mud 
type people or like right wing, whatever. I wouldn't even say they're even super centrist, but I will say age does tell or whatever. And I understand to some extent, I mean, look, as a parent, even as leftist as you are, you probably have a certain level of expectation for your child. You have hopes, you have mm-hmm. dreams, you have things you invested into them. You have late nights, early mornings, cleaning up bodily effluvia. There's just a lot of shit that goes into it, right? Like This I don't- is what I was telling Maria, our our mutual friend who um, I think we, we mentioned already, she, she put us in contact, but I was telling Maria that like I... The other day I was putting, putting my baby to bed. Um, and she, uh, I was thinking about how the fact that your sentencing date is her birthday. Wow. And I was like, I just cannot imagine having to, you know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, having her stolen, having her life stolen because of, because of this shit. Like my mom. Yeah. My mom's about to have to do that for me. It's fucked. So, yeah. So I go to my parents' house and I have to tell them that. And it's like. Yeah, like I said, you know, I, you know, I put my fist up, I, you know, I walk my talk, I've, in this case, I've done everything you would expect of a tough guy in the sense of from the street code, you know, didn't mm-hmm. cooperate, didn't tell on anyone, didn't name names, nothing, took my, took whatever sentence they were going to give me with a stiff upper lip and said, fuck them, bring it. Mm-hmm. But and I also did it in the sense of being a principled person and a cannabis prisoner and a left wing, you know, a left wing person in the sense where I realized that the underlying systems of this are fundamentally morally unjust and I'm not going to march to their beat just because now my life is at issue. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. You know, sometimes you, if you want to be a real revolutionary, you know, I mean, revolutionaries get shot. They go to jail. Yeah. You know, break Those the are law. principles. Yeah. You want to flaunt. The fact that you fucking hate this system, well, the system's going to hate you too. And there's a price to be paid for that unless you want to be an informant. And I'll never be that. So it is what it is. But it doesn't make it any easier. It really doesn't. I'm sorry. It doesn't make it any easier to, to tell my parents that. You know, it didn't. It didn't because, you know, it's it's not what they wanted for uh, for their kid. You know, not oh, at yeah. all. And it's, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know how they... I don't know how they reacted, but it, I can imagine in a lot of cases, it's also, it's also just kind of easier to uh, get I, get mad at your kid than get mad at a big faceless system that is just yeah, grinding people into dust. Yeah, that's there's a lot of that. I mean, look, they've been 100% supportive. They have not turned their back on me. They're kind to me. They will help me out in any way possible, you know, monetarily, logistically whatever they've been cool um but you know yeah there's just a lot of disappointment and yeah they definitely are not i don't think they're going to be like leading marches anytime soon and that's fine that's their approach you know other kids parents in this situation they really mount the parapet to some extent mm-hmm. you know they make barricades it's okay if my parents don't want to do that i've put them through fucking hell behind my own choices yeah so yeah, they're they're much more focused on the individual agency and that's me i and to some extent i think that is a product of age i think that even boomers or whatever they just don't understand like the larger systems underpinning things as much as yeah um, you know they're just like well but okay all those things are true but we have money and you had an education so if you hadn't done the things you did then we wouldn't be here right now and that's fair enough it's true it's true. Yeah, that but I mean, that's, it. it's true, but it's, that's how the system gets maintained is the few people who can kind of just glide through it without making waves 
keep doing that yeah, and you absolutely. decided not to and we need more people not yeah, doing that but yeah i understand that it's, yeah but the, but as a it's parent, your kid yeah <laughs> as a parent you become inherently cautious and selfish and conservative in some ways because you're like not my fucking kid you know, yeah like, like, let that be someone else's kid yeah my parents Same. do not love that i'm doing the work that i'm doing <laughs> right yeah they would prefer you to be do something safer more stable more conventional yeah calmer. Yeah, I understand Oops, that. But they also raised us with principles, so. Well, that's, I mean, that's like, I mean, that's with my parents. I went through that a lot too, because I was just like, you know, like you guys raised me to question authority and you also raised me to not hurt people. So when I'm put in this position where for me to acquiesce to authority, I have to hurt other people. I'm like, that's contravening the way I was raised. Yeah. So I, you know, there's nothing I can really do about that anymore. I don't know who said it. Is it Waylon Jennings? Mama tried. <laughs> so it's like uh so yeah so yeah they indict everybody and now we're like you know now now you're kind of living you're really really living on the outer rim because you're the way the federal system works in america is the indictment is often not the end it is merely the beginning of a new indictment like it's almost like its own organism like a creature i call it the sea monster because it's huge and you mm. only see a little bit of it here and there. You see like a tail fin here, an eye there, or you see like a boat get ripped under the water from like a mile away. And then you don't really see it until it's 500 feet tall in front of your boat and it's about to devour you. You know, like that's, yeah. so you start hearing things. You start hearing about people becoming unreliable, people falling out of contact, you know, like yeah. the signs. And that's the thing too, is like, you know, they tried to paint me like I was a shady lawyer. I was never a shady lawyer. I was an ethical attorney. I was a street guy by choice, but I was a street guy that happened to get a law degree. So I know, I know the streets very well. I understand how that, I understand the rhythms of the streets and crime, both organized and disorganized. I've been around these guys all my life. I've been in it. I'm a major drug trafficker on my way to a federal prison sentence, regardless yeah. of how laughable the substance I chose to traffic in is, you know, I know how the, I know how this shit works. I do. Yeah. So, and it would people. make you a better lawyer. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, I don't think I can practice again, but yeah. They, they, yeah. So you see people start to get weird and then you, you know, you, you, people fall out of contact, strange things start happening like that. And, and you can see how far their tentacles go <clears throat> because all of a sudden people are calling me and asking me, well, they're calling me and they're telling me, they're like, dude, cops called this one guy I knew from five years ago. And they're asking him about like financial transactions he made. And you're like, Jesus Christ. They're like six people up and down the line, like on every, you know, like, like they're really like all over everyone right now. Like, uh, omnipresent, constant, total surveillance. We're getting followed, my wife and I, every time we leave the house. Pretty much. Anytime, anytime we leave the house, you turn around. <laughs> there's white guys in a truck. White guys in a... And they're obviously not, not even hiding it. They're just... No, no, no. The, the, one, the one time the guy literally had an FBI baseball hat on. I'm not fucking kidding. <laughs> oh, my God. They want, they want, they want you to know. Oh you know, they're not... God. If, if yeah. they want to do it quietly, they can do it quietly. They, yeah. you know, like... No, they, and so they, they, do you think that there's um, functionality in, in, in doing that so obviously? Or are they just uh, like basking in the terror that they're no, no it's, it's functionality because the federal system all systems but the federal system particularly like the way conspiracy laws are laid out is it feeds entirely on cooperation it feeds on people mm. getting arrested cooperating or people fearing they are to be arrested soon 
right. and cooperative. So it's kind of both, but it's not just like yeah. sadistic. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's like it's not, functional no, no, fear. Yeah, it's, it's utilitarian sadism. Yeah. So like, so so like it works <laughs> because you, most people fold as soon as they hear the feds are on them. I mean, talking to people is free. It requires nothing. You just call them on their phone. You're like, hi, so-and-so, it's the feds. We know what you did. We want to talk to you. I mean, 99% of the time, those guys are grabbing a lawyer, running down to the federal. If they even are smart enough to grab a lawyer, a lot of them will just go straight down and start telling on themselves and everyone else. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, they put a poll cam up in front of our house. And then I start getting strange phone calls from people. And again, you know, like very much set the tone. It's like a, a you know, it's like a, a Checkpoint Charlie Cold War era spy movie, like that level of like betrayal, backstabbing, intrigue except it's real and it's played out in a major American city in the late 20 teens. So people are calling me up and they want to talk to me about old times. You know, they want to talk to me about, uh, about things that might've happened back in the day, other adventures and crazy stuff we did and loads we landed and things like that. And I realize I'm like, Holy shit. I'm like, these guys are wired up. Like they're calling at the behest and this is being recorded. You know, like they are running people from my past trying to figure out what's going on and at one that that that's terrifying i was also slightly heartened because i was like huh that means that they might not necessarily have what they need to pull the trigger on me yet right so i'm just using i walked into the 24th after the 24th i went to ground i quit i walked away i pressed flat and i used every type of you know guile tradecraft Without breaking the law, just any type of like any type of legal trickery I could use to like stay low, stay away, and not fall for whatever they were trying to get me to fall for. So I would shut the people down. I'd just be like, you know, I don't know anything about that, but I know that, you know, crime's a tough lifestyle and you should be engaged in productive law abiding activity. And that's really all I have to say about that. <laughs> Anyways, I'll do that, bro. You know, yeah. and like one of the guys who got jammed. All right, so segue. So this is how this all actually unfolded. And this actually ties into a lot of structural stuff too, like gentrification and uh, war on communities of color under the guise of the drug war. So Pittsburgh was a former steel city. It was a large, you know, America's largest or world's largest industrial manufacturer for steel, iron, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So there are all these abandoned steel towns that are in horrible economic condition in the periphery of the city. And these towns, while they're not in the city proper, are kind of more dangerous and more downtrodden than any quote unquote with big fingers inner city ghetto that they have. These neighborhoods are even more dispossessed because there's the one industry there died. I mean, they, they, you know, they look like places that got bombed from an airplane. You know, they're just yeah. completely destroyed. One of these towns is primed. Uh, well, many of these towns, though, they're on the river. And they contain a lots of stately old homes from the time when the social contract was honored a little bit better here. So they have the greatest guts for gentrification, waterfront property, old houses, right? Mm-hmm. At, at, at bargain basement prices. The one problem is, is that there's all these pesky poor black and poor white people there that are clinging on to the last vestiges of their old lives for multiple generations and still trying to make a go and kind of flourish, be the rose through the proverbial crack in the concrete. Mm -hmm. So one thing that they've been using here 
the Western District, the PA is, it's almost like, you know, again, I have no proof of this, but it's so obvious with the neighborhoods they target. They almost like work in conjunction with the developers. Like, you know, they, like they pick a neighborhood where it would be if all the men from that neighborhood had to go away for 10 or 15 years, it would be very advantageous for them economically because for, for, for that whole partnership, because then the men are gone. Yeah. The men might've been earning their money illicitly or partially. So, but with them gone, it's over. They can't even, the families can't even hold on to uh, the homes that they had or the apartments that they had, which then leads developers to be able to scoop things up for a penny and also just makes it a lot easier and more palatable to get upwardly mobile white people to move into the places when there's just not all these poor black and white people kind of milling around all day. Right. So there was a gang in one of these towns in Braddock called the Sco Gang. And look, I mean, they were fairly bad actors. They sold fentanyl. They utilized violence. They controlled territory. Whatever. I have no judgment about what they did or didn't do. I'll just say I didn't know them. I had no idea who they were or what they were doing. And frankly, I don't care. I wish them the best as long as they didn't cooperate. So they targeted this gang very extensively for about two years. They put wiretaps on them, surveillance, informants, anything you can think of. A guy sold weed to that gang. The guy that that guy bought the weed off of bought weed off of one of the guys like or from our pot, our general stash in Squirrel Hill. So they followed the breadcrumbs basically all the way from the steel town into the city, into the east side and to that spot. Like, but for that strange confluence of circumstances, targeting choices, I would be a free man right now. God damn yeah. So basically like for all this shit to happen to me, I mean, besides the structural stuff, just from a human interest standpoint for anyone who's listening, basically like about 20 different things had to go wrong for me to be in this position, none of which I had any control over after May 24th. Like at that point, the die was cast and yeah. all 20 of them went wrong. Like everyone, if, if, if one person hadn't told on me, who didn't, who told on me, I probably would be okay. If this hadn't happened, if that hadn't happened, like literally everything that I, that needed to line up for me to get jackpotted here did. So how do you avoid thinking about that 24 hours a day and going insane with like, I don't, I don't, (laughs) it's all I think about. And you know, the thing is though, is honestly, I'm not even mad. I mean, I am, I'm sad. Yeah. I'm just really, I'm really fucking sad. Like Mm -hmm. we, (laughs) yeah. So like, I mean, we lost everything behind this. And the thing that was really frustrating was again, if I had just gotten caught that day, I mean, I still would obviously have very negative feelings. And if anyone had told on me or cooperated against me that day, it would have been tough. would have felt bad, whatever. The fact that I had, we had my wife and I and my family too, this two and a half years of false interstitial life between the raid and me getting subsequently indicted uh, because of the raid after it, mm-hmm. like that, I cannot describe to you how horrible like that is. I mean, that is like, th- there's not words in the English language. You know what I mean? But yeah. Like, yeah, it, it's just awful. Yeah. Yeah, because you, 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 by the fall of 2019, I saw the writing on the wall. I thought that it was done. 
I had my attorney reach out to them and go to them and say, I am willing to surrender myself. Um, I don't want any special deal. I don't want any special consideration. I don't want any reduction in charges. I just want to plead out to what everyone else has already been charged with and get this over with, go to prison so I can move on. And like my wife, my mom and my dad can move on. Um, you know, but I don't want to talk. I just want, I'm just falling on my sword. I'm ready to take my lumps. And they came back to my attorney and they said, we're not interested. We're only interested if he talks, like if he wants to start giving information to someone who hasn't been arrested, you know, like, like, huh. you know, probably setting people up, letting them know the lay of the land, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so yeah, I was like, go, I was like, go fuck yourselves. <laughs> I'm not talking. I won't talk. I'm not doing it. You guys know where I'm at. You know, I'm just going to live my life, I guess now or whatever, and do what you got to do. And it's like, we lived in the most like heightened state of terror but then it's like, you know, four months goes by, six months goes by, COVID happens. Remember, when right. everyone else in the world is going through COVID, we're going through this and COVID. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, on top of it. So that happens. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. You know, we start to kind of crawl out of our shell. I'm like, well, it's now or never. At this point, it's been long enough that maybe they're not coming. So I'm like, I have to get like a new life going for us. So I was like, it's my response. It's my responsibility. Like I, I need to figure out new business, new path, whatever. And I was really serious about that shit too. Like, I mean, I started delivering earlier on, even I started delivering kosher meals to seniors in Squirrel Hill in my neighborhood before COVID. And I did it. I still do it. I did it during COVID at like great risk to my own personal health mm-hmm. because not, not because of like, I wanted any time off in a theoretical future sentencing date. It was literally because I won't get it for that anyways, but it was literally just because I was like, all right, look, you know, like maybe you got a little ahead of yourself here. You got too ambitious. You got too greedy, too capitalistic. Like, let's just, you know, okay, this part of your life is over. Like, let's try and find some spirituality here and like, try and be a better person, learn from this and move on. That was mm-hmm. literally like why I was trying to, so I'd really, yeah, and you didn't need a pr- prison sentence to, no, to not make at all. you do that. Like, nope, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. I, I, I attempted, I changed the hardest way of my own volition and on my own under a lot of external stress, but internally, like the way that you're supposed to the way the way the way Jordan Peterson would want someone to mm-hmm. I say that with all sarcasm, <laughs> dripping and sarcasm. Yeah, internally from yourself, from your own bootstraps. But I it's changed. funny when you were when you were talking about the square peg in a round hole. You know, um, I, I I thought about Jordan Peterson because his his advice, as you know, it and it it sounds like apolitical advice if you don't uh, know the meaning behind it, but his advice is always to people, you know, just, just stay low, blend in with the crowd. Don't stand out. And it's because that is what keeps up the status quo. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And like, a, a you know, a culture for a cultured, wealthy white guy who looks like him and has his earning ability. I'm sure that's awesome advice. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. great. Why didn't I ever think of that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people of color and disadvantaged people are like, wow, why didn't I ever think of that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you mean I could just, uh, just, just live my life and not get arrested for being black and just, you yeah, know, exactly. live my life and not yeah, be sexually yeah. harassed by my boss. Oh, cool. That must be nice. Yeah. Sick. Exactly. I had a Facebook <laughs> status that was completely sarcastic about two months before the raid happened. 
where I was like, I was like, the most important things in life are to make sure that you have wealthy white parents and to not make any mistakes. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> I'm here to give advice to the kids. And, you know, wasted by my, I was being sarcastic because I, I obviously believe in all the structural stuff deeply, but like, you know, hoisted by my own petard, you know, like I made that fucking mistake and now I'm a tactical mistake. I wouldn't say it was a moral mistake. But, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I, I, I go back to living our life. Like we're doing all these things, whatever, but again, it's the sea monster. We're in a boat. The seas are a little calmer now, but you notice that people haven't been sentenced, you know, like, like people's cases aren't finishing. It's just dragging on. And, you know, you can attribute that to COVID to some extent, maybe. But, you know, you, you, that, that sticks in the back of my mind. I, you know, I'm just like, because I replay the raid every day, four o'clock in the morning, I'm up replaying it in my head. Mm-hmm. Would you, um, I, I hope this isn't too personal of a question, but do you think that you have PTSD from this experience? So I, I have never pursued therapy in any way, shape or form. And that is no judgment against anyone who does. I think it's a really useful tool for a lot of people. I think mine is my situation here. It's so situational that I just don't know how it's really going to help me. You know, it'd be like mm-hmm. going to therapy for someone who put a sword through me. You know, so it's like, yeah, it's, sword. it's not anything else. It's not me. It's the sword. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah. so, so that, that said, I went to a therapy, I, I, I got a psychological evaluation um, in conjunction just because you're supposed to kind of do it before you get sentenced or whatever. It makes sense to like, you want to like have as much shit in your medical records as possible because it, whatever they don't have, like you get no, um, you can't avail yourself of basically. So I took the test for the PTSD, like the DSM to, I'm probably using poor terminology here, so excuse me, but so from what I understood, it's an 80 point score, like one to 80, basically, or, get, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I guess like high would be like in the 30s and going up. So I took the test and the clinician uh, calls me or she, you know, face zooms me or whatever. And she's like, so you got a 72 out of 80 on that, oh, on the piece. Jesus. Oh, damn. Yeah. I'm sorry. She was, like, she, was, she, was like, she was like, I don't, she was like, I don't even know. I mean, she basically said she was like, I don't, I, I mean, and she, she was in no way so blunt because she's a professional, but she was like, I, I don't know how you're alive, basically, is what, is what she said. She was like, I've never seen anyone, you know, not have really strong ideation or need to be institutionalized or something. You know, it's like you're, you got a 90 on the test when 50 is high. Yeah. So, so yeah. So to answer your yeah. question, I guess diagnosed with about as bad PTSD as you could as possibly you can get as you can get. Yeah. Yeah. So like, and it's ironic because one of the best uh, treatments for PTSD is uh, another drug that's also still illegal. Right. Um, MDMA. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Well, I will, I will just say, uh, and I'm, I'm only saying this um, for the benefit of people listening also, not because, you know, no, because it's, it's, it's your own thing, but I do think that, you know, we struggle a lot with, um, with mental health treatment in an era where most mental health struggles are caused by structural violence and capitalism. Yeah. And so obviously, yeah, like you can't necessarily like th- there's only so much that mental health support can do when, if you're, you know, going to get evicted from your home or you're going to prison or your parents are dying of COVID. Like there's, right. there's, if, you're, there's, if you're being, if you're being assaulted by someone who has more structural power than you physically, yeah, sexually, emotionally, there's, there's, like, yeah, there's, there's, only there's limits. You can do. Yeah, yeah, but I will just say also to people to people listening because I know that it's it's a struggle. 
but at the same time, you know, um, we talk a lot about psychedelics uh, in my work and stuff. And um, uh, one thing that really stuck with me is the fact that um, psychedelics have proven, and obviously therapy and stuff, have proven useful even for people who are in end-of-life situations. So even if you know you're going to die, you can feel better about it. And so that always kind of stuck with me where it's like, okay, even if I know that my life is shit and, you know, this stuff is going to keep coming, I maybe don't have to suffer as much as I am suffering. Obviously, there's limits to this because we don't, we also don't want people to just, you know, accept everything and just be like, yeah, well, maybe my life is shitty, but maybe it's all fine. So I'll just, you know, ignore it. We want, we want people to have a little bit of anger so that it motivates them to help us change things. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't want people to suffer. No, I don't want anyone. I don't want anyone to suffer either. And anybody who's listening to this, you should certainly avail yourself of whatever you think you need to do. And you certainly should never use me as a model of anything you should fucking do in your life. (laughs) Tell you that much right now. I mean, that's that's don't 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 do don't do what I did. That that ain't it. Um, Uh, Unless you get arrested, and then you know. Uh, have that revolutionary spirit and don't rat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and again, I and I under I understand that it's um the 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 terminology is outdated, you know, because it's it's inherently sexist or whatever. But it's, you know, stand up guy, be a man, like whatever, be a person, mm-hmm. be a stand up person, be a stand up human yeah. being, be a comrade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, be a comrade. Don't tell because because sometimes I had to explain that to my parents, to my dad. I was like, sometimes the street code and uh, basic human rights and humanistic principles and then, uh, you know, really, really solid left wing socialist, uh, you know, good Marxist political ideology uh, intersects. Sometimes the it's the right answer hits all five or six boxes. And it's like when confronted with authority, don't inform on your comrades. Be strong, even at um, great personal risk to yourself be brave. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Be, be, be brave. Yeah. yeah but at this, so at this point, I do. Uh, so I just want to mention that um, my, my toddler woke up from her nap and she is now like banging on the door. So um, we probably don't have too much time left. Although um, I feel like people are going to like this episode. So maybe we can have you back on uh, yeah. and talk some more, but um, yeah, I guess if we, well, we can wrap up your story and then I do have one more question. Yeah. Shoot. Um, but, uh, so yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. So, yeah, things are going on. It's feeling better, feeling better, feeling better. Open the business. And then, you know, I mean, at this point, Biden gets elected and I hold my nose and vote for him. And then everything was fine, right? Everything was fine. I, I Absolutely. My, my Everything was good. It all went away for problem sure. Problem solved. <laughs> yeah, problem solved. I was just lying to you this entire time. <laughs> but yeah, he promised that he would free all the cannabis prisoners, federal cannabis prisoners. So I was like me being not a single issue voter, but I was like, well, I like that. So yeah. I'll definitely. I'll, I'll vote for him again, harm reduction, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and we're really hopeful at this point, we're coming into 2021 and we decide we're like, you know what? Like we've c- kind of crested this horrible wave. We're moving on with our lives. We're like, we're going to pursue our dream and we're going to adopt. Oh. So we go through all that shit. We go through all oh the battery of beasts, the intrusion into our lives, all this stuff, whatever. And we put on a brave face. Cause I mean, the trauma she's been through eclipses, even mine, I'm almost hesitant to even speak about how emotionally damaged this has made her and how lucky I am. She's still here with me, but we go through and how sad I am that I'm going to have to leave her soon, but we go through all this or whatever on August 21st, the social worker visits our house for the home study part and she signs off on the home study. She's like, you guys are good to go on my end. We're going to submit the bio 
to the South Korea, you know, like well, it's happening, you know, it's, it's not going to be immediate, but she's like, you know, 18 months, 24 months down the road, like you're going to have, you're going to have a kid, you know, like, or whatever. And you know, so we're over the moon. I remember when I told my mom, she cried, she was so happy, especially oh because of like gosh. everything we went through. Then August 23rd, I'm at home smoking a bowl. I look at my phone. It's my federal criminal defense attorney flashing on the screen. And I already knew what it was because I haven't talked to this guy in over two years and he's not going to call me socially. So I pick mm-hmm. up the phone and he's like, yeah, man, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but you're indicted. Fuck. Sorry, that was yeah. August 23rd of this year? Yes. Just a few months ago. Okay. God damn yeah. it. Yeah. So that's that's where that's where the story ends. And I'll tell you this from a trauma perspective. When you're in this situation – it takes every good memory you have ever had in your life and it makes them it makes them more traumatic. I have an easier time remembering the raid and all the people who told on me and you know all this other stuff than I do remembering when my wife and I stayed at the Intercontinental in Porto and we watched the uh, fireworks from their Independence Day from the balcony. Like me saying that right now, I almost started crying. I've almost started to cry. Oh my God. And it turns it into a lie. It really does. It takes every good memory and it turns it into a lie. And all we wanted after all this shit was to be parents and to move on with our lives. And felons can't adopt really here. I mean, maybe it's really hard to. Oh no. Oh my God. Who knows now? You know, like. Oh my God. they took everything from us behind and, us for weed. For and not even, not even you, like they've taken everything from you and a, a, a child that you could potentially give a good life. Yeah, we would have. Probably would've. a child that like has like lost their parents to the drug war as well, which is yeah, like, we would have been really good parents, you know? Oh my gosh. Now, and, you know, it's like, so people see me and they're like, well, you know, I'm like Schrodinger's criminal. I was either this like, you know, fake better call Saul, which is funny because he wasn't a real lawyer. And I am. Or I was this like, you know, nefarious, like, you know, Jewish weed mobster, like mastermind or whatever. I mean, think of me whatever you want. That's fine. The people who know me know what it is. Know that I didn't talk. I stood up and I'm going to do my time like a man. And it is what it is. But I also can talk to people here or talk to you and you can hear me crying because I'm also a human being. You know, like I'm a fucking human being. Someone's kid, man. This is, yeah. I mean, for a fucking plant. For a fucking plant. And I don't, I don't even go to that well that often because I don't, I don't want to reinforce the idea that because it's a plant, that's why it should be legal and everything because, you know, methamphetamine, everything else should also be legal, but it's the extra level of absurdity. I mean, for something, for for a plant that's legal de facto in America to consume, but those of us who are the pioneer entrepreneurs, they do this to us all the time on the streets. You know, it's like when we, when, when they used to loan money, they were like, well, that's not, that's no good. So they, so they made up credit cards, you know what I mean? Or whatever. Yeah. And they, they just, they were like, all right, corporations can assume those interest rates. And then when with gambling, you know, they were like, oh, no, you guys can't have like gambling in your own neighborhoods. They're like, we're just going to, you know, casinos like owned mm-hmm. by giant corporations and the government. 
controls them. And now the same thing's happening with marijuana. Yeah. With you know, cannabis. And you know, the, 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 the thing is like, okay, you know what? Fine. You guys fucking win, but like, let us go then. Yeah. You know, you take everything from us anyways. You take away people's ability to earn a living outside the system. Okay. Fuck you. You win. You know, sure. For, okay. For, yeah. And sure. it's, it's for, for doing something that is consensual on all sides, the people on buying the weed want it. The people selling the weed are fine with it. Everybody's fine with it. A lot of the people who are buying the weed need it for pain. Some of them need it for pain that's caused by like poverty and the war on drugs. Like the whole yeah. system makes you feel like you're going to go insane. It's so fucked. Like it is, it's be, it's beyond fucked. And I certainly look, you know, I have a bunch of sayings in this. One is honor habet pretium, which is Latin for honor has a price because it does. It really, really does. And the other one is more kind of wistful is may you never have to live your ideals because it is a lot easier in life just to have your ideals, but never actually have them tested mm. because my God, <laughs> when, when you actually have to, when you actually have to live them and you're like, okay, I'm going to stand the fuck up. I'm going to do what I got to do. I am not going to fold or cave, but I'm about to lose how many years of my life in prison to trafficking in a completely harmless and often beneficiary modality that the state itself has started to get its claws into and, uh, and, and a certain preferred class of hyper enriched capitalists have mm -hmm. gotten their claws into you know, it's just, it's crazy. And, and then the way the structure is in America is all those stores and dispensaries, they're also breaking federal law. It's also federally illegal. It's only illegal in the state, the province, the territory. So like mm -hmm. those dispensaries are legal under Pennsylvania law, illegal under federal law. I'm going to prison in Pennsylvania for breaking the same law that the states, that the state, the, the, the dispensaries in the state, the legal ones that have the billboards are. They are also conducting the same crime that I conducted. Yeah, it's it's so absurd. I was going to ask you about that too. I couldn't remember if in Pennsylvania it was legalized statewide. It's um, medically it's medically legal. Okay, but like so it's any, a medical state. You can get a card. You know, it's whatever. It's, yeah, it's it's, it's and it I mean, is. yeah, the the <laughs> that's sort of like the more academic side of the work that I do is getting people to just break down this, these these artificial boundaries that we put up between different kinds of drugs and different kinds of drug use. Like, oh, if it's medicinal, it's okay. But if it's recreational, it's not okay. Well, who are you to say which is which when somebody else is putting something in their own body? Like, yeah, I'm not, I, I'm yeah. certainly going to police anybody. With yeah, no, not you. I mean, like, you know, no, 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 of course. the people that, yeah, are making these arbitrary laws. Yeah. yeah. I will, you know, it's so funny in my commercial, I said, laws are arbitrary. And I already know when I go in there, they're going to like be like, you said laws are arbitrary. So to prove that you're wrong and shut you up, you're going to go to federal prison for breaking a law that's legal in the state. I'm like, you guys don't understand. Dude. I feel like Socrates, like about to drink the hemlock. Like, eh, guess I was a little bit too clever by half there. Fuck. God damn it. Um, yeah. And oh, and if I just may take this opportunity as well to uh, get on one of my many soapboxes and probably my favorite one um, because it drives me insane because it's leftists that I'm fighting against about this topic because a lot of people, especially in Canada, but a lot of people everywhere have, have started to come around to the idea of decriminalization. That's great. Um, you know, Toronto, where I live, the city of Toronto has just uh, received an exemption from health Canada. They're going to decriminalize all drugs. Wonderful. 
However, I, there's people who say, I want to decriminalize, I'm fine with that, but not legalize. And I get really, really angry and frustrated because where do they think people are going to get the drugs from? Right. Like, you, I don't want sellers like you going to prison like that's it's that's the that's the kind of de facto regime here now i mean it's and i'm look i'm glad that it's you're it's safe you can smoke a joint walking down the street in pittsburgh and nobody's going to bother you anymore Mm -hmm. but you know there wouldn't be stores here if there weren't people like me and countless other of my comrades many of also whom have either gone to prison or been murdered or whatever in the street uh, if we weren't out there advancing it to begin with and people would be like, well, you made a lot of money from it. I'm like, well, I mean, it was extremely fucking dangerous job to do. Yeah. You know? if There's you guys, risk. If you guys had taxed me and regulated me, I would have been happy to give you pretty much any percentage that you wanted to in order for me to operate freely and within the law. It really wasn't yeah. that. It's like Alaskan king crab dealers, king crab fishermen and drug dealers that are like deserve the money for the risk. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's, it's a horror. As, as I've described, I hope adequately in this, it's a really, really risky job. And like even beyond legalization, decriminalization, this is really the only crumb I want. Biden has had a proclamation on his desk that is literally simply asking him to honor a campaign promise that he made in which he said, and there's a video on it. This isn't, you know, a a misconstrued statement where he said, I think that no one should be in jail for marijuana. They should all be pardoned and their records be expunged. So there is a proclamation on his desk asking him and Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, numerous other senators and Congress people have, uh, demanded that he follow through on this pledge. And it's literally, it's not to legalize, it's not to decriminalize. There's no legislative process. With one stroke of his pen, he could end this fucking nightmare for myself, for my family, for my comrade, Robert Capelli, who's doing eight years in Otisville because they caught him with a Cessna full of weed, for my comrade, Luke Scarmazzo, who is finishing up 20 years right now in Louisiana for opening a medical dispensary in Modesto, California, and he got convicted of a kingpin charge while running a state legal dispensary, freeing all of us, right? All he has to do is sign the fucking paper, and he won't. He won't do it. Motherfucker. Yeah, he won't do it. You know why he won't do it? I'll, I'll hop off my soapbox because I know you have to go back to your family and I appreciate it. No, but this is, the, we didn't, I don't think we got political enough on this episode because there's a lot to talk about, but please do. He won't do it. I honestly think, and it's funny because I read the guy's book right around when his dad got elected and I had a lot of empathy for him in the book because he suffered a lot. You know, he lost his mom. He lost his sister. Um, he lost his brother to cancer. I read Hunter Biden's book or whatever, and I, I saw his, his struggles with addiction. And yeah, you know, like he's even more privileged. If I'm privileged, I mean, this guy, Jesus Christ, you know what I mean, or whatever. But he has mm-hmm. had a lot of horrible problems. And I read the book, and I read how sad he was when he lost his brother. I have one brother. I don't know when I'm ever going to see him again because I'm going to prison. Sorry. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I empathize with this guy. And the only reason that Joe, I swear to you, that Joe Biden will not sign that fucking proclamation and he won't walk back this drug war that he was one of the primary architects of. I'm not yeah. only going to blame him. That would be irresponsible and disingenuous. But he was, you know, he's one of the 15 or 20 people behind this. The only reason he won't do it is because he caught Hunter smoking a joint when Hunter was 12 and then Hunter moved on to crack cocaine and meth. And he emotionally, as a parent, can't get past his own fear, rage, or disappointment. So I have to go to federal prison. 
even though he told me I didn't have to go. Like, I understand that the bullshit politicians say on the fucking campaign trail, especially neoliberal dinosaurs, is not legally yeah. binding. I'm not naive. Yeah. But Jesus Christ. It's not like, and I understand that all drugs should be legal and it's harm reduction, but it's not like I, I, I was like, Joe Biden, honor your pledge for fentanyl, free fentanyl or whatever. I was just like, dude, you said you'd let the weed people out because even your 82-year-old ass knows that it's fucking insane. But then you go home and you think about hunty smoking the joint and you can't fucking do it anymore. I'm like, oh my God, I have to go to jail because of this guy's privileged white guy, silent generation, fatherly pathos. Yeah. Wow. Jesus Christ. And just, yeah, his, his refusal to, to learn anything new since 1973 and maybe understand, you know, what, where drug use comes from. Like, like twofold. Number one, humans have been using drugs since the dawn of time. Like since, since we've been humans, we have archeological evidence for drug use dating back many, many thousands of years. We're never going to stop. And also the reason that people use them in a lot of circumstances and quite likely Hunter Biden's is because of trauma. So gee, I wonder whose fault that is. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Like, you know, he, he, you know, neoliberal deindustrialization plus the drug war. And then all these people are under trauma. So they of course then elect to use drugs as a way of blunting their pain. And then they get uh, thrown in prison because of it, which leads to more pain in themselves and their families. And this guy is just sitting there scratching his head like, God damn, these people just won't stop using drugs. I don't know. More real, maybe. Maybe that'll help. And like, I voted for you because I knew on one hand, you were this incredibly out of touch person who was an ineffective legislator your entire life besides passing the crime bill. But on the other hand, I read the book that your kid wrote and I was like, you know, like clueless as you are, I can see that you love your kids. And maybe that is the basis for some empathy where you would understand what you would be doing if you agreed to honor the promise that you made. Wasn't like I ran up on Joe Biden in a community town hall and I was like, you better promise me this in exchange for my one swing state vote. That that didn't happen. He said it. And he said it because obviously he wanted to get to the left with Cory Booker or Bernie Sanders or whatever. But, you know, here we are. I'm just like, God, you know, I'm really going to miss my family. Glad that he gets to enjoy his. Okay. Um, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, the right-wing media response to your arrest uh, because there's been, there's been a little bit of that, but um, yeah, maybe we'll, we'll have to save it for another time or I'll just, I'll just share it on Twitter because I'm not going to give those articles clicks, but it's just, it's also just been really frustrating watching uh watching them bask in hypocrisy that's not actually real hypocrisy it's ideological commitment um yeah in terms of the fact that you've been written up in these newspapers um but yeah, anyways for sure. yeah, vilify, um, being yeah. I am. uh anyways so yes uh daniel thank you so much for for sharing your story um i think this has been uh yeah i I hesitate to say good. This is all, this is my like hesitation with doing any of this stuff. So I'm like, this is excellent content, but I'm like, this is, it shouldn't exist. I don't want to do this. None of us want to do this, but like we have to get people to listen somehow. And I do think that you are, um, you know, the fact that you're willing to talk to me and you're very articulate and you know a lot about this stuff and 
your story uh, is very impactful. Um, so hopefully a few people who listen to this will either join on board helping us end the war on drugs and make it so that this absurd system stops scooping everybody up into this net, um, or at the very least, you know, changes some perspectives so that we can get more people, yeah, talking about this stuff. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate you having me on and I appreciate the work you do. I don't, I say this colloquially because I obviously I'm pretty atheistic agnostic, but you know, you're doing the Lord's work here. Yeah. <laughs> you're, doing, you're, doing, you're, you're doing, you're doing good work and I appreciate it and giving me a forum of people who are empathetic, at least in the, and, and informed as opposed to like you said, the right wing media that just enjoyed bashing me. Um, mm-hmm. In the limited time that I have left as a free man, you know, before yeah. I have to do my prison sentence. Yeah. Well, um, hopefully we can we can talk again. We'll keep in touch, and uh, yeah, you can send us send us uh, notes from prison. Let us know how it's going, and I'll send you. I'll send you. I'll send you a kite, as we yeah. say in jail. <laughs> Gosh. Thank okay. You. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Talk soon. I hope. On the next episode of Bread and Poppies, Daniel and I talk more about what happened, some of the things he's anticipating when he gets to prison, how the system will continue to punish him when he gets out, because, of course, the violence doesn't end when prisoners are released, and his experience being strung up and lied about in the ghoulish right-wing media. I want to thank my Patreon supporters. Your support means the world to me, especially right now as I'm coming off a year of unpaid maternity leave, have no more PhD funding, and am paying for childcare for not one, but two preschool-aged children. (sighs) Does it feel kind of shitty to plug my Patreon right now after that interview? Yes, yes it does. But the truth is, this is work that has to be done, and I have the ability and skills to do it. There are other ways I could make income, but I believe this is the most important and useful thing I can do with my education and training. So if you'd like to support more of this kind of work, please consider becoming a patron. Patreon.com slash Hillary Agro. It's only one L in my first name. I'm the good Hillary, not the bad one. <laughs> oh God, I shouldn't say that on the first episode of the reboot of this show. <laughs> Sorry, I swear I'm trying not to alienate people. I'm trying to get them on board. I will do better. <laughs> I have patrons-only videos up on Patreon. I'm going to be doing patrons-only podcast episodes as well. And increasingly, as I get more messages and questions than I can answer, the ones that I'll be answering will be on there. Thank you for your support, and thank you to everybody for listening and for caring. I want to thank Dan for sharing his story with me. Thank you to Maria Guido for putting us in touch. You can follow her at sandernista412 on Twitter. She sometimes posts updates about Dan. Bread and Poppies is produced by Marcel Rambo. The microphone I'm using was given to me by Mark Edwards of Ultraviolet Podcast. It's a great show. Check his work out. This is how we're going to grow stronger, by helping each other out. Please share this episode anywhere you can. Be well, keep up the fight, rest, and take care of yourself and your comrades. I love you all. See you next time. Mm-hmm.